0: We ask our Father that by your word and spirit, you would renew our minds, mould our wills, transform our hearts, and change our affections, so that knowing you will be our highest joy and loving your commands will be our greatest desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he was dealing with numerous issues. Some issues arose simply because of sinful pride. So, for example, factionalism would be an example of that. The church had split into camps, even thinking that theirs was superior to the other. Other issues arose because of ignorance and misunderstanding. One of those misunderstandings was a perception of reality that was popularised by Plato. Plato. Plato was a Greek philosopher in the 4th century BC, and he argued that there's an inherent disconnect between this life and the next, between material things and spiritual things. Plato taught that everything physical was merely a representation of reality. The true reality, he argued, was spiritual. Our goal in life, therefore, should be to transcend the material world, to escape its evil and limited ways and to aspire to that which is heavenly and good. Now you might think that that's a silly idea, but you'd be surprised how pervasive the idea is within our own Western culture. For example, you might think that your spiritual life involves prayer and going to church, whilst your secular life is entirely separate, because it relates only to work and rest and sleep. If you've ever thought like that, or you've lived your life as though it's true, then you've imbibed a Platonic worldview. You hear the same sort of commentary in the public square. Whenever the Church expresses an opinion that impinges on perceived secular interests, the usual response is that the Church should stick to spiritual things, leave the business of life to capitalists, unions, governments and politicians. And though views like that are common, they're arrogant in the extreme because they exclude a Christian voice from the public square. And they're ignorant because they fail to understand that the Christians have no hierarchy in their understanding of reality. We're created body and soul. And though we don't confuse the two, we certainly don't separate life into those two categories. That was the mistake of Plato and the Greeks, And it was also the mistake of the Corinthians, that they were convinced that there were two separate realities, and never the two should meet. Historically, such thinking has led to two errors. For some, it led to hedonism, and their thinking went like this. If your body and soul are separate realities, then what we do in our bodies has no bearing on our souls, our spiritual lives. So they used their bodies for immorality and decadence thinking that it made no difference to their spiritual health and eternal destiny, how wrong they were. But the equal and opposite error was made by others based on the same misunderstanding. For some their response wasn't hedonism but asceticism. Their thinking went something like this, if the body and soul are separate realities and the spiritual reality is the higher order, then aspiring to God can only be achieved if we deny the body and find our true self in spiritual contemplation. If the Corinthians in chapters 5 and 6 were making the first mistake of hedonism, then in chapter 7 Paul's definitely dealing with the second mistake of asceticism. Now asceticism was a mistake that was manifesting itself in the question of marriage. Just as the hedonists had their slogans like, everything's permissible for me, so too the ascetics had their own slogans. They were saying something very different. And their slogan, you can read it in chapter 7, verse 1, their slogan was, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they weren't simply saying that sex should be limited to the covenant of marriage. They were actually saying that sex, even within marriage, was a second-rate option, and that abstinence was the higher-order good, the path to true spirituality. Now, Paul doesn't reject outright the notion of abstaining from sex. After all, he himself was celibate, and he recognised that singleness was as much a gift from God as his marriage, as he says in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God, one has this gift and another has that. So singleness and marriage are both gifts from God, that neither one is for everybody and neither should one be preferenced over another. Both are equally legitimate and equally valued in God's kingdom. But Paul is just as clear that if a couple are married, then sexual relations would be the expectation rather than the exception. And shockingly, in a first century culture, Paul says in verse 4 that the woman, well, she's not the property of her husband. Conjugal rights are mutual and exclusive. And the reason we can't treat one another as property is said we don't even own ourselves, we belong to the Lord. That we've been created in his image and we've been brought with a price. Then in verse 8, Paul gives counsel to the unmarried and the widowed. He says that remaining single is a perfectly good option. But realistically, he recognises that sexual passion can easily ruin perfectly friendly relationships. And lead to sin that need never have happened. I suspect that Paul would be a great advocate for long friendships and short engagements. From verse 10, Paul speaks to those who are already married. And he's speaking to those who are wondering if they should stay married. After all, if as the ascetics say, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman then wouldn't separation or divorce be a more spiritual option than staying married? And if I'm a temple of God's Holy Spirit, perhaps it would be wrong for me to have sexual relations with my spouse, especially if they're unbelievers. But God's word is really clear. Divorce is never a part of God's purpose. According to Jesus, God allowed divorce in the Old Testament because of the hardness of man's heart, and now he forbids it except for cases of sexual immorality. No longer can a man divorce his wife simply because he's unhappy with her for any arbitrary reason. Marriage is a lifelong covenantal commitment. Nonetheless, some who were married to unbelievers were wondering if they should divorce. Uh, to them in verse 12 Paul gives instruction which he says is from him and not the Lord now this is not Paul's way of saying that this is merely a piece of wholesome advice take it or leave it Uh, this is Paul simply saying you won't read this in the Gospels We, we have no record of Jesus ever saying this he's certainly not saying that this is one part of scripture we can safely ignore but we can't It's the Word of God from the Apostle of Christ. So what do you do if you're a believer and your spouse is not? Perhaps you've become a Christian since you were married. Perhaps you married an unbeliever and now you recognise that this has caused all sorts of problems that you didn't foresee. Well, Paul's counsel is that if your spouse is happy to stay with you, then you have a covenantal obligation to remain married. Being married to an unbeliever may affect your sanity, but it will not affect your sanctity. In fact, the opposite is true. You belong to God. You've been brought with a price. And your relationship with God not only sanctifies your spouse, but also your children that they're set apart to God and remain firmly within the community of God's family. So pray for your husband or your wife, especially if their faith is not as strong as yours, and be assured that they're not a lost cause, that they are in fact dear to God's heart, just as you are. And if your unbelieving spouse does want to leave you, then do not make it easy for them. Give them every reason to want to stay and make sure that the decision is clearly theirs. Then give it lots of time and lots of prayer in the hope of reconciliation. And if the separation is final and permanent, then you're free to remarry. But for goodness sake, obey God's word, do yourself a favour, and look for a Christian husband or wife. If Paul's counsel in chapter 7 could be summarised, it would be this. Do not let circumstances control your life. Be content with who you are and what you have. Stop thinking that your life can have more meaning and purpose and significance if you were somebody else or married to somebody else. As Paul repeats in verses 17, 20, And 24, each one should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And the two examples that Paul gives are circumcision and slavery. If you're a Jew, stop desiring to be a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, stop seeking to be a Jew. And if Paul was speaking directly into our our own culture, I suspect that he would say don't think that you can solve relationship problems by running away from them. If there's abuse happening, then by all means separate yourself from that as a first-order priority. But if relationships are simply difficult, then don't expect to solve them overnight. Long-term relationships are always complex and difficult. Because anyone who's ever been married always ends up with someone who's just as selfish and just as sinful as they are. So be patient with those that you love and seek God's wisdom in prayer. And though in verse 21 Paul is clear that if you can gain freedom from slavery then do so, he's mostly concerned that we find our identity not in our circumstance and lot in life, but in Christ. As Paul says in verses 19 and 23, that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. You are bought with a price, do not become slaves of human beings. Then from verse 25, Paul gives counsel to virgins, to those who've never been married, to those who are considering or are engaged to be married. And to these he gives three words of counsel. His first word of counsel is to keep eternity in mind. Marriage is not eternal, it's temporary. It's until death do us part. And there is no marriage in heaven. So marriage is not the be-all, and the end of God's purposes. If you do marry, then don't think that you will find your identity in your marriage, let alone your spouse. If you don't marry, then don't think singleness is what defines you. For as Paul says in verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away, so hang on to it lightly. The second word of counsel that Paul gives to those who are considering marriage is to face up to to reality, that marriage is complicated and difficult. Anyone who's ever been married for longer than the honeymoon will know that Paul's right when in verse 28 he says, Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. It's not easy being married. It means an almost entire loss of autonomy. And even your self-identity can be so merged with your spouse that your sense of significance is tied directly to your husband or your wife. As Paul puts it from verse 33, a married person is concerned about the affairs of this world, how they can please their spouse, that their interests are divided. The unmarried, however can have undivided interests. Have a look at verse 34. They need only be concerned with the affairs of the Lord. They can devote themselves to the Lord both body and spirit. That is totally. And that's the thing about devotion to God. It involves the totality of our whole being. We worship God with our bodies no less than our spirit. For having created us body, soul and spirit, God has also redeemed us body, soul and spirit. We are not our own, we belong to the Lord, who's purchased us at a great price. The third word of counsel that Paul gives to those considering marriage is in verses 36 to 41. And there Paul says simply to make your decision. Listen to what God is telling you and do not listen to the hedonists or the ascetics. If you are engaged, then stop vacillating. Get married sooner rather than later or simply decide not to get married at all but make a decision. There is no good or bad choice. Both singleness and marriage are gifts from God and either can be embraced as God's good and perfect will for you. The only caveat that Paul gives is in verse 39. Have a look. The one you marry must belong to the Lord. And if that's the case, then there is no point in having a romantic friendship and the possibility of marriage with an unbeliever. In the heat of the moment, passion and libido will always trump rationality, and God's will is going to be the last thing on your mind. And if later on you do think about God's will, you'll try to persuade yourself and everybody else that what you have is true love, the very thing that God's in favour. And then you'll convince yourself that God's greatest purpose in life is your immediate happiness. I can hear it now. But you'll say, surely God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? You might even argue that God actually wants you to have a relationship with an unbeliever so that you might woo them into the kingdom of God. Now such notions are totally deluded. That sexual attraction and passion is not the measure of true love. And personal charisma and charm is no substitute for the work of God's Holy Spirit. And as for, wanting, as for God wanting our happiness above all else, well, that's perverse and ridiculous. And God's desire is that we find joyfulness in holiness, not happiness in sinfulness. And if you choose to have a romantic relationship with an unbeliever, or you willfully choose to marry an unbeliever, well, it's straight-out sin it's the very thing that God says not to do and far from strengthening your faith or theirs it's likely to diminish both now I reckon so far I've said plenty enough to upset some people and not nearly enough to satisfy others because in one sense marriage is pretty straightforward but in practice can be really difficult and really complex. I don't know if marriages are any less happy now than they used to be, but it's painfully obvious that divorce is certainly more common than it used to be, so much so that it would be naive to think that no church member would ever have been divorced or remarried. It's not so. And though the teaching of Scripture is largely clear, there's room for discussion and debate. Because some issues relating to divorce and remarriage are not bound by hard and fast rules. Infidelity and abuse would be two obvious examples. Humans are complex and so are their circumstances. Not everything related to marriage is a blanket rule. So if you have been divorced or remarried, I want to assure you of a few things. Firstly, I want to say that God hates divorce and it's never a part of his good purpose and will. Now, that shouldn't surprise anyone because that's the experience of everyone who's ever been divorced. Divorce is really difficult. It's an emotionally traumatic experience and nobody would ever wish it upon another human being. Secondly, I want to say that when divorce does happen, it's not the unforgivable sin. And though going back to a first marriage may sometimes be possible, in practice it's nearly always highly improbable. But there's always a way back to God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive us our sins. And he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's God's promise. But confess we must, because there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. In any divorce there's never an entirely innocent party. For we've all sinned, and we all fall short of God's glory. There are no exceptions to that. The third thing I want to say is, But if you have remarried, then you should consider that new marriage a covenant relationship before God. If you think you've made a mistake, don't try and fix it by another divorce. We don't honour God by dishonouring a second marriage. So long as it's possible, remain married and honour God by loving your spouse. And whether you're single or married or divorced or remarried or or any combination of the above, always be mindful that your body matters because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. Devotion to God is not simply about our spiritual affection towards him true and proper worship of God must also mean the offer of our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. For we are not our own, we have been purchased at a great price, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we honour God with our bodies. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, that you have loved us with an undying love and have purchased us with the precious blood of Christ Jesus our Saviour. Thank you for those you have given us to love and for those you are preparing us to love. Forgive us when we fail to love as we ought and have sought to find identity and purpose apart from you. We thank you for the singles in our church and the wholehearted commitment to serving you. Teach us to love them and embrace them as fully formed individuals, brothers and sisters in the faith. Please strengthen our marriages so that we might be a testimony to the world that marriage is your idea, to complement what we are not, to be fruitful and multiply and to be a model of our relationship with you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.